Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Easy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have a great show for you as I return from a vacation week. I'll preview the World Junior Hockey Championship with Dave Starman, who will analyze Team USA games on NHL Network. And I'll have a tribute to the late Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. The Urban Meyer experiment in Jacksonville is over. Meyer was fired uh, last week. And to discuss this is the man who is the sports director at CBS 47 and Fox 30 and host of ESPN 690 AM. And, of course, you know him from his days at Fox 23 here in Albany. It's Brent Martineau. Brent, welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) I didn't think we'd be jumping back in to the podcast, (laughs) at least under these circumstances. Uh, It's unbelievable what a wild 11 months it's been around here. Really a wild, like, two weeks in Jacksonville. Where did it go wrong between Urban Meyer and the Jaguars? Yeah, it's debatable where uh, exactly the starting point was. I mean, obviously there were some missteps along the way, but to culminate in this less than a year in, I, I don't think the hiring of Chris Doyle, the controversial hire uh, strength coach out of Iowa, I don't think like that set this in motion. Uh, you know, Tebow, people have brought up, uh, maybe divide the locker room. I don't think it did, really. Uh, it might not have been a great play on Meyer's part, but I don't think it divided the locker room. I really think uh, a bunch of this stuff goes back to his hiring. And you've got to hire the right staff. And the one thing Urban Meyer had a problem with is he did not want to raid the staff of Ohio State and Ryan Day. And so he did not have a lot of familiar people around him. Uh, I saw an article recently with Jimmy Johnson. He said when he went to the Cowboys, he had his entire staff, his PR person, his trainer um, from the college days that came with him to Dallas. So they were loyal to him. Well, there was not a lot of loyalty and support on this staff for Urban Meyer. They tried to make it work. Who knows where the problems were. But when you don't have that loyalty, what you get is leaks. And it was week number one when we started to hear some words about his style and what was going on in the building. That was week one. That was like the morning of the first game. Well, then that dissipated. And then, of course, you had the Ohio incident, the bar incident, not taking the flight home. That really exacerbated the situation. And what I think that did, Ken, was it put Jags owner Shad Khan on alert. That got his attention. I think they started to look at the contract. They said, if he has another misstep, can we get out of it? Uh, and, and it just started a file. It started what I would call like an HR file on Urban Meyer. And that list started to grow um, from on-the-field stuff, of course, with the losses. But that wasn't the main story here. It was, why aren't you playing your best player in James Robinson? And why are you not telling us exactly why you're benching him? And then James Robinson actually on our show on a Monday night said, yeah, I feel like I'm getting benched and I feel like I deserve the ball more. And then that led to the Marvin Jones report and altercation, and then the coaches saying they were called losers, and then finally the Josh Lambeau report, which I believe didn't fire him necessarily, the Lambeau accusation. Instead, the report was just going to embarrass this organization once again for another 24 hours or even into the NFL weekend. And I think the owner had just had enough of the embarrassment. I mean, how embarrassed is he? I mean, it's just, you, you bring in a guy who you, you know, he has great success in college, one of some national championships, and as we talked at the start, of, you know, back in September, we I mean, there's been some terrific failures 
of college coaches going to the NFL. I mean, it's it's not an easy uh, transition. Well, I think uh, Urban Meyer proved that again. I, you know, I thought, hey, you know what? Football's football, right? I mean, if you run an organization, whether you run a business or you run a football organization, it's like, well, this guy's a good culture builder. He's a CEO. He's done that at the collegiate level. I mean, you're telling me the guy can't go and win football games in the NFL? I was wrong. I mean, listen, he didn't win. They didn't get any better. They got worse. They, he came in to, to kind of fix an already muddy culture that was in there, at least a losing culture. He made it worse. The Jags are worse off than they were a year ago when they got Trevor Lawrence, the number one pick. Now they might get the number one pick again. And and it's even a deeper hole. I, we, we experience the new rock bottom, it feels like, every year here in Jacksonville. And I, I didn't know it was this deep, but it certainly is. And so I think they're, yeah, I think embarrassment is the thing right now. I, I think Shad Khan said it. Uh, we were with Shad Khan, the owner of the Jags, a couple weeks ago, uh, actually a week ago. And, uh, I asked him, I said, are you not getting the same coach you thought you were going to get when you hired Urban Meyer? And all this aloofness at news conferences and this hands-off approach, uh, he's admitted to not being that, that micromanager and that maniac that he was in college. And so, therefore, are you getting a different guy? That that guy was great in college, and now he's trying a different approach, and he's not very good at all. And I think what the owner said, what Shotgun said, is, listen, it's one thing to lose. But the dr- drama around it, the self-inflicted drama around it, that's another thing. And we've experienced this in the past now. And we've experienced it with a guy who has much more equity than Urban Meyer around these parts. When Tom Coughlin uh, started getting complaints about the NFLPA and the grievances a couple of years ago, that embarrassed the organization. The NFLPA came out and said, hey, I wouldn't go play in Jacksonville. And Chad Khan was embarrassed by that and fired Tom Coughlin. I think, again, I think he was embarrassed with what Urban Meyer was producing on and off the field, and that led to this. Yeah, the ironic thing was that, that the fact that the Jaguars have actually won more games this year than they did last year. So maybe there is some you know, ray of hope there that the um, Meyer did something decent. Yeah, I don't think so, really. I mean, they got fortunate. Uh, their offense is awful. If you look at the two examples of what he does, right, he's a special teams guy. He's an offensive guy. And uh, their special teams has been a, a disaster, and their offense has been worse. Uh, their offense has not scored over 20 points in two months. Uh, their offense has scored 20 points in a game three times in 14 games. Uh, their offense is a season high of 23 points, and that was on the strength of two 50-plus-yard field goals in the final four minutes to beat Miami and London. Uh, they, they are a mess, and, and what I say around here is find me an offensive player and you can do this on a lot of positions on the team, but especially on offense. Find me an offensive player that is better than they were after the first six weeks of the year. And I can't find one. And that includes Trevor Lawrence, and that's the biggest problem. He was here to go hand-in-hand uh, hand with uh, Trevor Lawrence to groom him, to develop him, uh, make this really good skill set and, and, and really good quarterback into an even better one, into an elite one. And he's failed in a miserable way. The young man has been very average at best and sometimes not very good. And we have not seen much growth out of him at all. And that goes for the entire offense. What does uh, What is this, Trevor Lawrence's mindset right now? I mean, has he lost confidence with the, you know, the way this season has uh, spiraled out of control? I mean, he, he's not used to losing. No, he's not used to losing. I think, by the way, I think he handled the losing better or has handled the losing. He's been... Uh, He's a super mature kid. I mean, it's unbelievable at news conferences and behind a micro, 
microphone. Uh, he obviously is, is got to be a lot going on in his mind. I mean, the world is caving in around him from the firing of coaches to the reports and the drama and everything else. But I think he took a big step as the face of this franchise over the last couple of weeks by admitting as such and by sticking up for James Robinson and voicing his opinions and, hey, we need this guy playing. And by saying, hey, we can't have this much drama around here. Uh, many times the people think in this area that he was more mature than the head coach. And so that helps. But sooner or later, he's going to play better football, too. Uh, his, his Five drops on Sunday. Um, guys are fumbling the ball. Guys are lined up wrong. Guys are holding. I mean, there's they just have not helped him out at all. Um, and that's a problem. But he has to play better, too. And, and I think he knows that. But he has been set up essentially to fail, it feels like, this year. And uh, it's it's going to be a throwaway rookie year from a statistic and growth standpoint. Maybe takes a lot of positive out of it in the offseason and pretty much says it can't get any worse from here on out. As we are talking on this Monday night, December 20th, uh, the, it seems like there's a lot of people that are interested in seeing former Eagles head coach Doug Peterson take over in Jacksonville. Is, is he the leading candidate, or is there other candidates out there that uh, would be uh, better? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I think Peterson is a very good candidate. Uh, I don't think we can say leading. I don't think we know. It's very early in that process. Obviously, they've got to go through the the, the NFL rules, and, and they get to take advantage of a new rule coming up next Monday, and that is that they can start interviewing people um, already. That's new this year, and it might be a one-time thing, but the Jags can take advantage of that. They don't have to wait for, say, a Josh McDaniels if he makes a playoff run to interview him. Uh, same with the enemy. Uh, same with Byron Leftwich. So he can, they can do that. Uh, one thing, I, I've been here a long time now, and I've covered ShotCon for a decade. Uh, he has a very tight circle. He does a fantastic job of keeping it close. So if you hear reports, I don't always believe them. Um, I also think if you hear reports, it's probably coming from agents. But it's not coming from Shad Khan's circle. He keeps it very tight-lipped. Uh, we know they've interviewed Josh McDaniels in the past. That was back in 17 when Doug Marone got hired. Uh, and so that could be a possibility. I think Doug Peterson makes sense. He's a Super Bowl-winning coach. He's on his second go-round. Uh, I think there's a lot of logic there. And I think uh, a lot of people around here wouldn't mind seeing uh, Jim Caldwell. He's 66 years old. He's had six plays. Like, and he's a good man. And, and a stable uh, figure. And I think uh, with a ton of experience in the NFL in Indianapolis and Peyton Manning and Baltimore, so he knows what winning is, I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't mind seeing Jim Caldwell get hired. I don't know what his health situation is. But right now I would say if, if I would check with Caldwell. I think Doug Peterson's a good option. I think Josh McDaniels is a riskier option, but I still think a good one. And I would go with someone with coaching experience if I had to make the call today. I would like to see Doug Peterson only because of this. The NFC East and the AFC South play each other next year. Jaguars come to Philadelphia <laughs> next year. What kind of drama will we have then? <laughs> yeah, that would be something, wouldn't it? Um, and I think, by the way, there's, uh, you know, there are a lot of connections between the Jags and the Eagles if this were to go down. I mean, there's a lot of connections anyway. But you go all the way back, Bradley was almost hired by the Eagles. And then Chip Kelly had a change of heart. And then they, so he went back. And then Gus, I think Lurie, the owner of the Eagles, basically recommended Gus Bradley to Shad Khan. And so he ends up getting getting there, obviously. Uh, then uh, Nick Foles, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Minshew's now traded to the, the Eagles. Uh, Dave Caldwell, the former GM's in the personnel department of the Eagles. 
And ironically, if Doug Peterson were to take over, Peterson took over for college guy Chip Kelly, uh, and he would take over for college guy Urban Meyer. <laughs> so I think there's some interesting parallels, uh, all coincidental, of course, but I think it's pretty interesting between the two organizations. My son loves Minshew. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, everybody, a lot of people like Minshew. He played fantastic that one game, um, and, and he's a capable guy. I, I believe that. I've said that. Uh, by the way, one more parallel, too. Uh, Philadelphia almost played the, the Jags. If, right. if the Jags had hung on to win that game on 17, they would have played them in the Super Bowl. Yeah, that would have been amazing. But, uh, well, Brian, I appreciate you squeezing me in for a few minutes here. I know you had a busy schedule. I appreciate you doing that. Have a great holiday, and uh, we'll talk in the new year. Yeah, happy holidays, man. Good to talk to you again. That's Brent Martineau. We'll talk World Junior Hockey next with Dave Starman of NHL Network. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Stanley Hootie. I'd like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2022. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Andrew Waite. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2022. Welcome back to the podcast. The World Junior Hockey Championships get underway Sunday. The United States, the defending gold medal champions, will take on Slovakia at 9.30 on Sunday. You'll see that game on NHL Network. And you'll hear this next guest voice uh, doing the analyst along with uh, play-by-play announcer Steve Nelson. It's uh, Dave Starman from uh, NHL Network and many other uh, great uh, outlets like CBS Sports Network for College Hockey. Dave, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Hiya, Shotzi. What's going on? Uh, not too much. Just getting ready for the holidays. And uh, I, guess, I guess next week I got uh, Union and UMass for New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, a uh, doubleheader, basically. Oh, that's all right. It, it, I'll tell you what, keep your eye on UMass. They're, they're, I mean, I don't, obviously I don't have to oversell the defending champs, but I, I, I like this new version of them. They, they've got some speed. Uh, you want to Scott Morrow there, obviously, because he'll be with the World Junior team, but this team's got some speed. It's got a little jam to it. Goaltending's been good. They're well coached. I, I like where UMass is trending and love what that program's done over the last five, six years. And I'll do a quick promo for my podcast next week. I'm going to schedule to have Greg Carville on, the UMass head coach, and we'll talk about winning the championship and uh, uh, what's life is like as a defending champion. So it'll be good to catch up with Greg. I haven't talked to him since his uh, St. Lawrence days. He's, he's a great dude. I, you know, we had him on last year right after the Frozen Four ended because I was on the radio side calling that. and uh, He got very emotional, and it was really neat because it was very genuine. He's, you know, he's a very intense guy. He is a very focused guy, and he's wonderful to talk to, whether you're talking about hockey or family or school or the NHL, whatever. He's just a really interesting guy to talk to, and to hear him get as emotional as he did for the kids, especially the ones that, that came in there early, just after the five-win season, and were really part of the rebuild and helped carry them through. You, you could tell not only how much it meant to him, but how much it meant to them as a group in terms of what they accomplished. You, you'll, you'll enjoy, as you know, you'll enjoy talking to him, and your audience will love it. 
And he has one of the deeper voices I've known in college hockey. I mean, he could do like, a radio disc jockey if he wanted to. <laughs> Either that or he'd be a mob boss. He's one or the other. I, I love the low gravelly voice. It's great. <laughs> well, let's talk World Junior Hockey. As I said, Sunday, everything gets underway. The United States defending champion. They'll be back up in Edmonton uh, getting ready for the games. Uh, what do you see out of this team? Can, can they uh, repeat? I, I think that when it comes to repeating it's interesting because i've never ever thought of a team going to the world juniors as the defending champion because the, it's the federation is the defending champion the team really isn't right they'll have they'll have six guys back but it's not the obviously not the same group that that won it last year so i've always i've always found that to be you know a little interesting when people talk about the, you know, the defending champions it's, it's it's more the logo than the players but i like the the group that's coming back and maddie veneers out of the university of michigan a kid from hingham massachusetts i think he's going to be a real key component. Last year, I thought that underneath the radar, I mean, I had Trevor Zegers who wrote a great story, and, and he was terrific. And Spencer and I really pulled it together after that up-and-down game one. But underneath the surface, unsung hero, Matty Beneers to me, outside of those two, was the best player maybe in the tournament. Like He was unbelievable in the role that he played. He'll have a bigger role this year. And you know, having seen a lot of Michigan this year, and there's not a shot that this kid doesn't like, and there's not a spot in the net that this kid can't hit from 30, 40 feet. So I, I really think if you if you're, want somebody to focus on, uh, Matty Veneers out of the University of Michigan is going to be great. But but Shotzi, I'll tell you this, this, this team will win if it does because of its defense core. This this is a really good group. Brock Faber from Minnesota and then the odd couple, Tyler Clevin and Jake Sanderson from North Dakota, they will both be, or those three will be the returners. And then you've got some real high-end players to surround them with Luke Hughes out of Michigan. It's just a real good offensive spark plug. Wyatt Kaiser is a good 200-foot player out of the University of Minnesota Duluth. We just mentioned Scott Morrow a little bit, University of Massachusetts, just a clever, gifted, wiry, kind of offensive-minded defenseman, and a little bit of a surprise at Jack Pert from the University from St. Cloud State, who I think is going to really open some eyeballs. I mean, how important is it to have three defensemen that played last year and uh, maybe help these guys get through and what to expect out of this tournament? Because, I mean, obviously... It's a big deal, and you know, it's, it's real. I, I like the fact it's really become a big deal here in the United States. I mean, I remember back uh, when Shane Gosbear, the former Union Defense, was playing. It was over in Europe. I was getting up uh, like two, three, or four o'clock in the morning to watch these games, and uh, it, it's amazing to me. How, but first of all, let's talk about how important these guys are back, and we'll talk about the uh, growth of this tournament uh, over the years. Okay, first of all, don't remind me of those 2 and 3 a.m. things, because remember when <laughs> those tournaments were over in Europe, we were doing them in studio. There was one year. Well, we were doing them in studio at a at a Comcast facility in Denver. So, oh, like, take two more hours and put it behind. Steve Mears and I were getting up at like one fifteen to go do a game at three thirty in the morning, <laughs> and then we'd walk out of studio, and the sun would be coming up over the mountains, and we'd look at each other. It'd be seven o'clock in the morning. We look at each other like, well, now what do we do? You know. Like, but uh, but in terms of the importance of the guys that are returning, I think that. The key thing, especially guys that have played in the program before, you get a little bit used to the way other federations like to play and the styles they like to play. So whereas during the season you're used to a steady diet of your conference, this becomes a little bit more contained because you're only going to see four different teams. You're going to see them in a very short period. And some of those returning players have got a pretty good idea as to what they're going to see style-wise from the other federations. And there's going to be some familiarity in their birth year. So they'll, they'll have that as well. So to be able to bring that in I think is great. To be able to to talk about why they won last year is important. And it's the lessons learned in terms of coming together quick, in terms of getting proper rest, in terms of 
blocking out the white noise, in terms of just kind of staying in the moment, in terms of the nutrition, preparation, uh, visualization, all those little things that make such a big difference that sometimes the, the fans don't see. The kids like that will be able to bring to the other group, and if somebody starts to wander off the reservation in terms of not liking their role or they're not playing as much as they used to or they don't understand where they fit in, you know, a guy like Luke Sanderson, a guy like Jake Sanderson will be able to walk over to him or Matty Pierce will be able to walk over to him and say, hey, listen, you know, I was in your role last year. I might be getting the bigger minutes now, but I was in your role last year and I embraced it and I got a gold medal hanging in my room. And if you want the same thing, you'll figure this out. And that's important. Let's talk about the goaltending. Obviously, who's going to be the replacement for Spencer Knight? Well, it's going to be Drew Camesso from Boston University. And what's, what's interesting is he's, he's part of that 0-2 birth year. And at the, Nash, at, the, at the program, when he was there with that 0-2 group, now keep in mind, that 0-2 group was a pretty good group. And, you know, Gineers was, was a part of that. And, you know, people talk about, you know, you see a guy like Gineers, and they can't imagine he'd be on a team that had trouble scoring. But that 0-2 program team was not a big scoring team. And Camesso was the guy that really had to hold that together. And when you look at the U.S., in terms of its offensive abilities, you know, people are wondering, are they going to be able to score enough with the lineup that they're bringing? And, I mean, our personal feeling is yes, but Camesso is used to being in a situation where he's got to be the glue guy to hold teams in games, prevent the game from falling apart when it's 2-2 midway through the second and, and your team is trying to find its offensive jam. So I, I, I don't know how long the leash is going to be because Camesso's first half has been a little up and down. And, but that could also be a byproduct of BU being so injured in the first half and not really having a lot of consistency. So we'll see where Camesso takes this. He will probably get the start and probably look at it as the number one because the, the other kids, Umberto and Silverstein, are a little younger. I look at this roster, Dave, and I see all these 2,000. I'm thinking, my God, I'm old. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's been a long time since you and I were sitting in Hershey Park watching the Bears and the Skipjacks, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> the good old days, but... Uh, uh, same coaching staff as last year, uh, led by uh, head coach Nate Lehman of Providence College and the former Union College head coach. Uh, assistants are uh, Ted Donato from Harvard and uh, former Union College goaltender and first-year college uh, Colorado College head coach Craig uh, Chris Mayotte. So how important is it to have the same staff uh, uh, for this team as they had last year? Okay, you mi- here's the funny thing. I, I, or maybe my phone might have clicked out for a second, but I didn't hear you mention Steve Miller from Ohio State, yeah. and Steve Miller, to me, is the glue guy that holds this all together. And Nate's, an, Nate's a great coach. Teddy Donato's a great coach, and I really like what Chris Mayotte is starting to do at CC, and he's been a terrific assistant everywhere he's gone. But Steve Miller is special. He, he's got a great mind for the game. He's got a great ability to communicate it. He is terrific when it comes to video. And here's a guy that Frank Saratori at Air Force brought in as a director of hockey ops one year just to help mentor the coaching staff. And Frank's been around as long as Steve, if not longer. So, I mean, this is a guy whose mind is so well-respected in the game. And I think that while the head coach has a lot of the pressure and the spotlight on him and, and a lot's expected of them, a good staff makes a difference. All the years that the U.S. has gone there, they've brought some pretty good staffs. And I, I think that this one is right there with any of the ones that they've brought in, in the past. But I, when I look at this group with Teddy Donato, a guy that's so smart offensively and you know, much much like uh, Jerry Keefe was when when he was on that staff. You know, he kind of keeps an eye on the forwards, and Chris Brad will handle the goaltenders and some other stuff, and Steve Miller will handle a lot of the defensive structure, the penalty kill. And I just I think this is a good group of minds that's got a really even keel demeanor and knows how to build a team. As I mentioned before, the fact that I mean, this tournament has really 
grown in popularity over over the years here in the United States. Yeah, a lot of the, thanks to the NHL Network. I mean, how how have you seen this tournament grow? I mean, I back in the day when I was you know first getting in, yeah, you know, because you mentioned covered Hershey Bears. I mean, I never thought of um, the World Juniors, and and then now it's like it's, it's appointment television now. It's you know it's been it's been really neat to watch this thing grow and. You know, I coached, uh, when I was coaching the minor leagues, I coached for five years in the South, between Atlanta, Macon, Georgia, and Memphis, Tennessee. And SEC and ACC football is about the biggest thing going on down there. And when I used to sit around with some of the folks I knew down there, and they were talking about high school sports, and, you know, Max Preps has done a great job at promoting, you know, the prospects coming into the into NCAA football and basketball, whatever sports. The, the prospect world has become an industry all to itself. And I think in hockey, it has become the same way. People want to identify and want to watch and want to get to know the players that are going to come up through the ranks and then eventually become professionals. And to me, the World Junior Tournament is unlike any tournament on the planet in terms of the future of the professional league that it represents being on display in full force. Because I think when you look at the NHL right now, you could probably make a case that the number of players that have played in the World Junior Tournament that are currently playing in the NHL is probably somewhere around 65 or 70%. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a staggering number. And I know with the U.S. teams that we've done over the last, well, this will be my 14th year. So in the last 13 years, I went back and looked over a lot of those rosters, and I would tell you that more than half, well more than half of the players that have played for Team USA have gone on to play games in the NHL. So I think the reason that this tournament has exploded is fans want to see the future of their teams on display. They want to see the future of their league on display. And I would make a case that the future styles of the game are on display at the World Junior Tournament because these young kids are working on stuff that they're going to bring to the NHL, much like Zegers and Milano, a couple of World Junior alums did a couple of weeks ago. They're working on stuff. They're cooking up stuff on individual skills that they're going to bring to the next level, and it's going to be on display at the World Junior Tournament. And that, to me, is why this tournament has really grown in popularity combined with the fact that American hockey has just gotten so much better. Yeah. Uh, The United States is in the Group B with Switzerland, Sweden, Slovakia, and Russia. Group A has Finland, Austria, Germany, Canada, and Czech Republic. Kind of disappointing we're not going to see U.S. and Canada play in the preliminary round, but they could see each other in the crossovers. Yeah, I've, I've I've always felt that it should be mandatory that the U.S. and Canada should be in the same group every year. I'll give you another one, and this is this is going to get me skewered by everybody. But I would make a case that you could really change the format a little bit and go with the Big Five all in the same division. So I would like I would love to see the U.S., the Russians, the Swedes, the Finns, and the Canadians in one pool and let them play round robin. Like you wouldn't even need the medal round at that point. Yeah. So I, w- I would like to see that happen too, and then you get the other. There's another four big countries. You get the Slovaks. You've got, I think it's called Czechia now. I, I think they changed the name from Czech Republic to Czechia. So you got them. Then you've got the Swiss who are pretty consistent. And, and then after that, you've got this mix of groups, whether it be the Danes, the Latvians, the Germans, uh, Kazakhstan. I mean, you've got all this whole group of, of teams that are kind of coming in in those nine and ten holes. But if you took a division of the big five and said to them, okay, so you big five automatically are going to cross over, and then we're going to take the next three out of the other group, kind of like what the NHL does with, with, with the first round of the playoffs with, with the two wild cards, mm-hmm. I, I think that you create some really good matchups because i gotta be ta- I got to be honest, I'm a little past watching 
like the U.S. beat Kazakhstan 14 nothing. Yeah. I'm a little past watching Canada beat Denmark 11-3. Like, I'm over it. So, I like, to me, the only negative component of this is you got a few teams where, uh, unfortunately, the federations just don't have the depth to match up against the big teams. But to be able to watch the big teams play against each other consistently night after night, to me, as a hockey fan, I would miss a game no matter what. So, I mean, that's just... That's part of it. But I, I, the U.S. is in a tough group. I mean, I, the Slovaks are going to no easy out. The Swiss are always competitive, and the Russians and the Swedes, obviously their rosters speak for themselves. Yeah. Of course, the one opponent everybody's got to be concerned with is the COVID and got the Omicron variant. Uh, how concerned are you about that I mean, affecting the tournament? I'm always concerned every time I, I hear these things that are floating around. And But I, I do think that last year, the IIHF and the federations did a really, really good job of keeping everybody in the bubble and keeping everybody contained. And, you know, a lot of the coaches talked about how at times it was almost, you felt like you were under a lockdown. You couldn't do a whole lot. You really had to scratch and claw to get some of the, the basic things just to keep your mind and body motivated and active on, you know, on some of the down days. And this is one of those tournaments where downtime is important. And if you don't have an outlet to get away from the pressure of the games and the bright lights, it could affect you as you move along. So I, I think, it's funny, I think that's a concern combined with the preparations to keep the players somewhat isolated, somewhat bubbled, and and away from the from the general population. And it's probably one of the big reasons why this year's tournament, if it gets pulled off, once again, a, a lot of credit will have to go to Hockey Canada, the IIHF, and the, and the participating federations for, for following the rules and, and doing what they should. And I can't tell you that every player, participant, whatever is vaxxed and boosted, but I would guarantee a good chunk of the mark. Who's playing in the gold medal game, and who's winning? Uh, I'll tell you what, Steve Nelson and I will be calling the gold medal game. I mean, that's about the only guarantee I think I can give you on that, but who's playing in that game? I, you know what? I don't know. It's I, I think that I think the key is you've got to have goaltending, your power play has to work, and you need to stay healthy. Like That is really a key component for any winning formula, whether it be the World Juniors, the NCA, whatever the case is. But when I when I look at when I look at this tournament, the fact that it's in Canada, you would have to think that and and there looks like there's gonna be fans as far as I've heard. And if something else has happened since I don't know about I, I apologize. But I would have to think that after losing last year, that this is gonna be a group that not only is pretty deep, but that also is going to be pretty motivated. So I would make a case that more than likely, they probably get through. The Russians are so flaky. I, you just you never know. If they decide that they're all in, they could be the hardest out. But there are a lot of times where they get down 3-1 in the game they need to win, and you just wonder whether or not they're going to look at each other and say, do we want to play hard enough to overcome this? The, the Finns, to me, are, are such a hard out that you just never know because they figured out how to play this. They have no problem going 2-2 two and two and then throwing it down in the middle round and seeing what happens. So... So I, and the the Swedes tend to crap out early in a lot of cases. That they're just they're just a funny team. They're a good team that's just a little funny in that way. And then you got the U.S. whose roster is as good as anybody there. So again, if, if goaltending and and key power play goals are something you want to watch as you get into the medal round. Of course, you'll you'll be celebrating uh, the change of the year uh, when the U.S. and Russia play at nine thirty on New Year's Eve night. That'll be fun. <laughs> Listen, you have not lived until you have celebrated New Year's Eve in Secaucus, New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, that is, when, when I write the book on my career, <laughs> that'll, be the, that'll be the opening chapter. Let me, tell you about, let me tell you about New Year's Eve in Secaucus. I'll write the forward. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
why don't we talk about speaking of college hockey? Um, you guys are back on CBS Sports Network with the NCHC. When's that get underway? We start January seventh, and it's a little bit of a changing of the guard. As you know, Ben Holden has moved on. Is he is just crushing it doing these KHL games on the on the portable app. I mean, like he, it's he's working solo and. He's calling these games, and I, he has been awesome. It's, he's, I think he's up to 50 games this year. And, and I'll tell you what, if, if an NHL team or network that covers NHL games doesn't grab him sometime soon, I, there's, there should be an investigation. I mean, the guy is unbelievable. But he has moved on, and Stephen Nel- uh, not Stephen Nelson, that's World Juniors. Uh, Alice Heinert moves in. He does the North Dakota games from Midco, so he really knows the conference very, very well. He and I did some games in the pod last year, and and during the NCHC playoffs. So Alex is going to move in as the play-by-play guy. Shereen and I are back. It's it's year number 19 for the package. It's year number it's 9 or 10 for the NCHC. And we are excited to get going. January 7th is our opening game. I believe the game is in Omaha. I cannot think of what the – I think it's Denver and Omaha to open us up. And every time that that package gets started, we really get excited. And as the only original member of the year one crew left, I – I always joke with people, I feel like the Otis Williams of, of our group is the only surviving member of the Temptations that's still going. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I'm the Otis Williams now as, as I'm the grizzled old veteran here in year number 19. Yeah, I remember CSTV back in the day. <laughs> oh, boy, I, I'll tell you what, that was that was so much fun. We we were like Monday Night Football at the network. And remember, a lot of the people who came into that network had come out of ABC. So they had that mentality of what that one-game national package was supposed to look like. And the folks that were producing, directing our games, and, and some of the people behind the scenes back at the network were really, really accomplished Emmy Award-winning television people. And it was, like, we were, like, almost untouchable back in the CSTV days. Nobody worried about the hockey package. I mean, there was there was a lot of other things going on, a lot of other issues to fix and that kind of thing, but we were standalone. We took care of ourselves. We were self-contained. And I think it's one of the major reasons that the package survived, and a lot of credit goes to the management that stuck with it, because it's... It's not a it's not an entity that's going to generate a ton of revenue on the TV side from from whether the ad revenue or whatever. But it, it's it looks good. It's been done well. It's been handled very professionally. The network really cares about it. They understand the tradition that goes behind it. And the fact that we got through years one, two, and three at CSTV to the CBS College Sports era and now to the CBS Sports Network era, and we're still going. We are the longest running national package that includes regular season and playoff games. In college hockey history, and we think we are—we think we are the biggest, baddest show out there, and we'll continue to be so. And I almost forgot—I just realized I have to induct you into the uh, Five Overtime Club after last year's the North Dakota Minnesota Duluth game. Well, don't forget—I've been to—I was Yale. Was it Yale and Union that won five overtime yes. in a playoff game? Yeah. I was at that game too. So I—I I, um, that was a long scouting night, but oh, yeah. that was. Uh, uh, but I—I tell you what—that game was—that game was really cool. And it, believe it or not, it lasted a long time. When the game ended, I remember thinking to myself, that didn't feel like five overtimes. Like, that didn't feel like eight periods. And I think one of the major reasons was it was Minnesota Duluth and North Dakota, who basically I've lived for the past decade. Mm-hmm. And I had so much on those two teams with their history, their players, staff. So, I mean, that game could have gone all night. I don't think I would have run out of material. So I, I, I was lucky in that respect. If that game was two teams I didn't know as well, it might have been a little bit of a struggle, but the fact that I knew both programs really helped. And it was a good game. Like, if you go back and watch it, there's not a lot of dead time in the game. Fatigue takes over at, on the ice, 
But if you go back and you watch that game, which is an investment all in itself, that game had a lot of pace to it, even even as it kept going. And of course, you had the goal taken away in one of the overtime. I forget what overtime that was, but he had a goal taken away. It was crazy. That was that was the second overtime, and that was the first instance. And it's here was the cool thing, Shanti. This is the historian in me. So four years before that in Fargo, if you remember, BU and North Dakota played a game, and North Dakota looked like they had scored an overtime to beat BU. I think Joel Janatweenen was was the goal scorer or was the guy that was offsides. I can't remember, but he was involved. And the play was reviewed, and it was determined to be offside. But at some point in the in the play, before the puck had left the, the BU defensive zone, possession had changed hands. And BU couldn't get it out, North Dakota wound up scoring. After that game, shortly after that game, a rule was created in college hockey, which is a rule that I think a lot of fans don't know about, because when I brought it up on the air, everybody was like, what are you saying? And it's called the BU rule. And what it is is, if the linesman misses the offsides on the entry, and the attacking team doesn't lose possession and scores, the, def- the team that got scored on can challenge. But if possession at any point in the defending zone changes hands, so let's say Minnesota Duluth has it, they're offside, the linesman misses it, North Dakota winds up with the puck, can't get it out, which wasn't the case in this one, mm-hmm. and then UMD gets it back and scores, it waves off the missed offsides. So it's called the BU rule because of that BU game. And in that North Dakota-Minnesota Duluth game in overtime, North uh, Duluth never lost possession of the puck. That's why that goal got waved off, and it was because of the newly enacted BU rule that uh, was in effect there. Great stuff, Dave. Uh, and of course, the NHL Network, I have all the games, uh, the World Junior Championships, and of course, as I said, U.S. will uh, take on uh, Slovakia at 9.30 on Sunday. We're looking forward to that, and, and Dave's analysis of the uh, games, and along with uh, play-by-play man Steve Nelson. I've yeah, chatted with Steve a couple times on Twitter. He seems like a great guy, and uh, he's really gotten involved. He's gotten to know his hockey pretty well. I will tell you this. Year one and two, when we worked together, uh, we, we we enjoyed each other's company, and we, you know, we enjoyed working together, but we were trying to find a groove, and I had just come out of four years with Steve Beers, and, and, and I was in the midst of a, a great run with, with Holden at CBS. So, like, I had two pretty consistent play-by-play guys, and sometimes it takes a little while to, to get used to somebody else. So we kind of spent year one and two getting used to each other and figuring out each other's nuances, and and, and then it re- I thought last year it really, really clicked for us, and uh, it, he has become a terrific, Hockey play-by-play guy. He's another guy that I would really love to see at the next level. I know he's doing some stuff with the Blackhawks, and to me, he's a guy that I think could wind up in a national scenario, whether it's a host or or doing some play-by-play as, as things move along. Just a really talented guy. He does his homework, does his preparation, asks a lot of good questions, and has got a great personality on air. So, fans, if, if you're watching the game and, and you're listening to Steve Nelson, you're, you're in for a treat. And he also has his uh, uh, whiteboard. He has messages on there. I hope he puts me on there one of these days. <laughs> well, text me on a game night. We'll see what we can do. We'll see if we can throw something in there that only you'll know that we're talking about you. Yeah, I'll text you. Listen to the Party Shots podcast. Free <laughs> <laughs> <Great> publicity. <laughs> hey, listen, if anybody has watched me over 18 years, 19 years, you know I'm not shy about throwing a plug. You know <laughs> Definitely right. David, appreciate it, my friend. Uh, have some fun uh, there in Secaucus calling the games, and uh, we'll, we'll be watching. All right, Sean, thanks, buddy. All right, that's Dave Starman. Coming up, we'll have my tribute to uh, Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hi. 
This is Daily Gazette editor Miles Reed. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2022. The pro football season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets his or her name in the Daily Gazette on Thursday and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com slash football. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Daily Gazette Sports Editor Michael Kelly. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2022. That's You Just May Be The One, written by Michael Nesmith and performed by The Monkees. Welcome back to the podcast as I look back on the life of Michael Nesmith, who died December 10th at the age of 78. If you don't know the story of The Monkees, it was a TV show that ran on NBC from 1966 to 1968, focusing on the adventure of a rock group trying to make it in the music industry and finding themselves in hilarious situations. And there was always a song or two featured on the show. The Monkees had some very catchy and memorable tunes like I'm a Believer and Last Train to Clarksville. But they were also accused of not playing their own instruments, which was somewhat true. Nesmith and Peter Tork were musicians, but Nesmith wanted to have producers use songs they wrote. In some of the tributes I have read, Nesmith wrote a song called Different Drum. But the show's music supervisor, Don Kirshner, said it did not sound like a monkey song. The song did become a hit for the Stone Ponies and their lead singer, Linda Rodstadt, who went on to international success as a solo artist. Eventually, the monkeys got their way. And a lot of credit to that goes to Nesmith. He may have worn a ski cap for most of the show's run, but he was the guiding force in making sure the band was indeed legitimate. The critics then were not kind to the monkeys, but over time, many people became fans of the monkeys, especially in the 1980s when MTV started airing their shows. For years, Ned Smith seemed uncomfortable with his legacy with the monkeys. Eventually, he became comfortable with it. Recently, Ned Smith and Mickey Dolans completed a farewell tour, and by all accounts, it was a success. The video of the two embracing at the final concert last month's show is emotional, especially in light of Nesmith's death. Now, Dolans is the last surviving member of the Monkees. Davy Jones died in 2012, and Peter Tork passed away in 2019. Nesmith was more than a musician. He produced music videos, which led to the creation of MTV. He was also executive producer of the movie Repo Man. The world was a better place with Michael Nesmith in it. It still will be because we still have his music. As we head to break, 
and we'll have the latest winners in the Daily Gazette's You Pick a Football Contest. Here is one of my favorite Michael Nesmith compositions. What am I doing hanging around? Rest in peace, Papa Nez. There are no words to describe it. The isolation, the boredom, the loneliness. If you're wondering where your teenage son or daughter's spirit went, you're hardly alone. The past year has been devastating, especially for them. But here's the good news. They might just find it again, playing high school sports. Workouts that stimulate, teammates and coaches that care, the sense of belonging so many of us have been missing lately. That's what school sports are all about. The sense of achievement is real, and the camaraderie is hard to beat. Coping with uncertainty is difficult, but school sports can help the teenagers in your family start feeling like themselves again. Encourage them to give it a try. High school sports, it's so much more than a game. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette Managing Editor Kaylin Brown. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2022. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 14 winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick em Football Contest was Leo Duggan of Saratoga Springs. Leo wins a $100 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Leo. The Week 15 winner was Kenneth Wetzel of Carlisle. Kenneth also wins a $100 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Kenneth. The Week 14 VIP winner was Dwayne Leach of All Seasons Equipment. The Week 15 VIP winner was Tom Cotugno of BL's Tavern. I'll be announcing the weekly winner of the You Pick'em Contest. That winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. If you would like to play, go to dailygazette.com and click the You Pick'em logo. The NFL season is heading into the home stretch. You can see my picks and where you can watch the games. Go to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports to see my picks and the TV listings. I was 10-4 and in week 14 and 12-4 and in week 15. I am 138-87-1 on the season. Who are the best high school football players in the Capital Region this season? Check out the Daily Gazette's annual all-area high school football teams in Saturday's print edition and online at dailygazette.com. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself. 
do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I would like to thank Brent Martineau and Dave Starman for coming on the show. Next week, I'll be joined by my Daily Gazette sports colleagues as we review the year in sports, both locally and nationally, in 2021. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, and Merry Christmas.